prayer, please. Amen. Yes. <clears throat> Father, we uh we thank you, God, for for bringing us here, God. Another another week, God, to learn uh, a lesson, God. I pray, God, for the lesson, Lord. I pray that we learn, uh, that we receive our knowledge, oh God, and just understanding evil, Lord. I pray, God, that we would take this, God, onto the streets. I pray, Lord God, that we would come we come across to individuals on the streets, God, and they ask us about evil. I pray, God, that uh, that the gospel, God, would just be the center, God, that we tell them about Jesus, Lord, that we tell them that if they have a problem with evil, God, I pray, God, they know that you did not uh, create evil, Lord. You create everything good. I pray, God, that you continue to move in our hearts, God, continue to show us, God, everything about you, Lord. I pray, God, we continue to learn new things, Lord God, on uh, this next season of our lives, Lord. I pray, Jesus, God, in this lesson, God, all everything you have uh, imparted into, into uh, Pastor Joe, I pray, God, that we receive it, God, that we will study on our own time as well, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that we will learn uh, new methods, oh God, into how, how to go about uh, preaching your word. I pray, God, that many people, God, will receive you, Jesus, that they will receive the free gift of salvation. God, as we uh, go into the streets, I pray, God, that through the uh, apologetics, God, that we defend the faith, that we know that when we defend the faith, God, that we have confidence in doing so, Lord. I pray, God, that you continue to have your way in this class. Move, Jesus. I, I believe, God, you can do great things, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that awesome prayer, brother. That was wonderful. So welcome. We are today in week eight. And we will be discussing chapters 7 and 8. And the reason why I did that is because he spent two chapters describing the uh, problem of evil and trying to give solutions to it. And then he gave his own, really, in chapter 8. But uh, this doesn't need two chapters for us. So what it did, actually, is open us up to have a week off between the quarters. So Lord willing, next quarter, starting in October, we'll be uh, doing a new 301 class on a Thursday and that will uh, give you guys an opportunity to rest up between uh, weeks, uh, between quarters. So we'll have the week of the uh, 26th off. We'll end the 19th. And I'm just confirming now that we can have our special guest uh, with us, our atheist friend. So what we will do is uh, next week we will conclude, uh, no, excuse me, next week we will talk about unbelief, which is the 5th of September, then the 12th. Um, we will conclude the book and go through the rest of, um, uh, excuse me, we'll conclude the book, and then we will go through practical applications here in class. And then the 19th will be devoted just to having our special guests with us so you guys can give it a trial run, all the things that you've learned. And we can talk more about that later after class, uh, some of the ideas that I have for it. But uh, one of the reasons why I combined uh, chapters 7 and 8 is because this is where uh, the difference is between us not being Calvinists and him being a Calvinist come, comes through in the book. So for him, the problem of evil is really a big problem. And we're not going to get into Calvinism right now, but uh, the basic idea of Calvinism is that God ordains not only um, the world and um, the idea of how everything's going to work out, but God actually ordains choices as well. So they believe in one sense that God is the author of the evil. Now they don't like being told that uh, and have their uh, belief system be brought back to them like that, but that's really what it is. And just for an example, uh, I'll read to you from a, an article where Leighton Flowers, uh, and I was going to add this to our notes because I 
came up with this a little bit later, but I, I will show you here. Leighton Flowers actually gives some of the quotes of prominent Calvinists and how they believe towards God's foreknowledge and ordination. So here's John Piper. He's a famous Calvinist. He says, God brings about all things in accordance with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It is rather that he himself brings about these evil aspects for his glory and his people's good. This includes, as incredible and as unacceptable as it may currently seem, God's having, God having even brought about the Nazis' brutality at Auschwitz, as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rader and even the sexual abuse of a young child. And then John Calvin even taught this, how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evil comes to be not by his will, but by his permission. And by the way, that's exactly what we believe. God has a permissive aspect of his will where he allows it, but it's not necessarily what he wants. And the same thing here is we say that God turns the evil for our good. Both of them are saying, no, that's not what we believe. We actually believe God brings about the evil. It is quite a frivolous refuge to say that God obtusely permits them when Scripture shows him not only willing, but the author of them. So you can see if he comes from the Calvinist point of view, he's in a lot of trouble when it comes to the problem of evil. So in a lot of ways, when people are actually attacking uh, God and saying, if he brought forth the evil, how is uh, he not responsible for it? If he knew people would do X, Y, and Z, that is really actually the problem of the Calvinist. That is not our problem. We believe as non-Calvinists, leaning towards the Arminian side with middle knowledge as a philosophical pos position for predestination, what, what we say is that, like A.W. Tozer said, God sovereignly chose that man would have choice. And so by man being given a choice, that means God may not like everything that happens, but he is allowing it to happen, knowing that he can turn it for good. And so if we go to today's notes, kind of just ending, uh, starting where, where I ended here, I did a whole discussion on the will of God and understanding it from a non-Calvinistic point of view. And obviously it's on the website, and I forgot to say this, the website is down. But basically the way I describe it is that God makes his decrees known, and then God gives us permission or excuse me, God gives us his will in the description of what he wants us to do. Like in the garden, do not eat from the tree. He describes what he wants. Then he gives us permission to make our own choices. And then he decrees what he is going to do with our choices. But just because God foreknows what our choices will be does not mean that God chooses our choices. So remember that God is responsible for our choice, but not the consequence of the choice. So if we make the wrong choices, God is not responsible for that. Where the Calvinist basically says, yes, he is. God is responsible for even the fact of there being evil. And some of them go so far as to say God even ordained the fall of, of the devil and the fall of Adam and Eve. So it is a philosophical system. It is not a belief system taught in the Bible. It is something added on top of it. It is known as divine determinism or divine fatalism. 
It is not according to the Bible. The Bible always is giving man the choice. Even in the time of Noah's flood, God is grieved that he had made man. In the time of the prophets, he said that it didn't even enter into his mind some of the disgusting things that man was doing. And once again, this doesn't mean that God did not foreknow. God foreknew this could happen or would happen rather, but it was never in his heart or his mind. He freely gave man choice to freely choose. And then God, through the choices of man, worked out all things for good, as the Bible says. So this is where we depart from the book. And we don't need to take all the rabbit trails that he takes because we have a better way, the best way out of the problem of evil. And I do think it was good of him that he actually shared the different uh, versions of dealing with the problem of evil. And ours was one of them, the free will um, version. But we're going to go more in depth into that because he doesn't think that's adequate because, once again, he's a Calvinist. And he wants to basically say, we can't say that evil is here because of man and it's man's fault. We have to really put it back on God and say it's God's fault or God's responsibility and try to explain how God would want evil in some way. And like I said, this class is not meant to be a class on Calvinism. You can uh, look at the resources that I gave when my website is back up, the, the one here at the bottom, and then you can definitely see that none of these people that I'm using today are Calvinists and anything that they're saying kind of refutes those positions as well. And then if you actually want more information on that, I can give you a Leighton Flowers um, website and his podcast, Soteriology 101, and he rocks it all the time. And so that was just reading from one of his articles. And I, I wanted to add it to the website, but then my website went down. Okay, so like I said, we added, we combined two chapters together because uh, we don't need two chapters. Uh, sad for him, he did, and I still don't think his problem of evil really goes away, and that's why I'm not a Calvinist. And John Wesley said it makes God out to be a moral monster. So whatever the Bible means in some of those tough places uh, where the Calvinist tries to find refuge, I like what, what John Wesley said, whatever it means, it doesn't mean what they say it means. The most outstanding attribute of God is love, and so whatever would attribute him evil or anything like that, we just don't want anything to do with, and the scriptures teach us that it wasn't his desire. He may have know it, known it, but that doesn't mean he made it happen. Like a thermometer may know the temperature, but it doesn't determine the temperature. And so just because God foreknows does not mean that God foredetermines. That doesn't mean he makes it happen. God uses the free will choices of man and turns it for his good. And we can see that at the cross and Joseph and all that happens for evil. God turns it for good, but he is not the author of it. He is not the one setting it in motion. He is just the one responding to it because that was his sovereign choice. He decided, he sovereignly decided that man would have the choice between good and evil. And then ultimately, I mean, we to say this before we read our scripture, is then this totally changes the way you look at salvation. So since he's in control of everything, now you understand why he controls who gets saved. You cannot get saved, according to a Calvinist, unless God has chosen you to be saved, and he saves you before you get saved. And they call that pre-work of salvation, regeneration. So unless God makes you born again first, you cannot confess Jesus as Lord. And that's literally what they believe. They believe regeneration and being born again happens before you confess your sins, before you confess Jesus as Lord, because it's a divine act of God. God does it, and then your light, the light comes on, and you go, oh, I want to be saved, and then now you confess Jesus. Well, what's the flip side of that? No one 
Uh, whoever doesn't get saved, whoever doesn't do that is going to hell because God did not do that for them. Now, the Calvinist may respond, and I'm getting a little bit longer than I wanted into this as I see the time slipping by. The Calvinist may respond and say, well, we should be happy that God saves anybody. But once again, God created the mess to begin with. God allowed the mess to be done. So if he can sovereignly choose people to be saved, why doesn't he sovereignly choose everybody to be saved? That is the problem of evil. This was all up to him. Why didn't he just do something differently? And so they try to want they want to come back at us and say, well, your God's not all powerful. He's just playing the cards that he gets dealt. But but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he is in control. He is all powerful. So he does turn everything for good. But he sovereignly gave dominion to man. He sovereignly let man make his own choices. That was his choice to do. He never had to do it. That was his choice. And once he did, he allowed the chips to fall where they may. And he made sure, as he is the master chess player that he is, that it works out for his good. So it's not very impressive for me to control all of my little uh, puppets to say what I want, to do what I want. But if I can allow them to have autonomous free will, but I still work out their will for my will, that shows how much I'm in control. The God of Calvinism is a God of meticulous determination where he's literally setting up everything. He's putting some in hell, some in this, some in this, the bad, the good, and all of this. That's, that, that is just him playing uh, uh, with us, like uh, someone would play with a puppet. So we don't believe that's who God is. We believe God sovereignly allowed us to make our own free choices, and then he responds to them. And there are so many scriptures that talk about that, just starting in Genesis, just starting right there. Here's the tree. You decide what to do. Then in the time of um, with, with Moses and the people of Israel, you know, here are the blessings, here are the curses. In the time of Joshua, choose you this day who you're going to serve. With the prophets, Return to me that you may live, lest you die. You know, uh, in the New Testament, Peter saying to the people, save yourselves. Not that we save ourselves by good works, but you determine whether or not you will be saved. Paul, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. You decide if you want to continue the work of God, if you want the work of God to continue in your life. The, uh, the calls of Jesus, come unto me, come unto me. God is not forcefully drawing anybody unto him. He gives them the choice. And then in the uh, book of Revelation, you know, if you don't do this, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. If you do this, you can come. It's a book of choice from front to back. And it's a choice that really matters. And so at the end of the day, evil is here because of our choices. People go to hell because of their choices. No one will go to hell because of the choice of God. No one. It's only those who go to hell is because they wanted to go to hell. And he wished that none would perish, but all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he's the uh, his sacrifice for sins is not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. First John. So that's that about 10 minutes just on Calvinism. But that was I, in my head. I kept telling myself, don't go there. Don't go there. Just just tell them real quick while you're doing chapter seven and eight. And just, just move on. This is not about Calvinism. Just move on. But then boop, it just all came up, which hopefully God will use that for his good. OK, let's have Rachel read John 319, our scripture for today's a lesson on defending against the problem of evil. Sure. John 3:19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There we go. <laughs> so why is there evil in the world? People love darkness instead of light. Pretty simple, right? So let's put all that divine fatalism behind us. 
God did not choose for evil to come into the world. We did in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. God allowed the choice to be there. So he's responsible for giving us choice, but he's not responsible for our choices. He just used it for his good. And let me just say this real quick one more time. When we look at that, somebody might say, well, couldn't he have done it otherwise? And we don't believe he could have once it involved free creatures. If God wanted free creatures, we believe this is the best of all possible worlds with the most possible people saved. And we may get into that later, but what that means is the moment God was going to give true freedom to Adam and Eve, this was going to be the outcome, and this is the best version. So God wouldn't have chosen it to go forward with him being the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, unless he knew at the end this was going to have the best possible outcome. Now, some people might say, could he have created a world without good and evil? Yes, but we wouldn't have been free creatures. So the moment he decided, I don't want to have robots be programmed to love me. I love you, God. You're the best. The moment he wanted free creatures, the only logical thing he could have had was good and evil choices. And then the good and evil choices were eventually going to be broken by people, and those people would have the consequences. And so God, in his sovereignty, said, I don't want just robots for all of eternity. I want people with real choice. Real love is a choice. Robots don't love. My computer doesn't love me. So in making that choice himself, now we have the world of good and evil, heaven and hell, and I believe this is the best world and the best possibility. And I believe the most amount of people will be saved. I don't believe there is a potential world that God could have had free creatures where even one more person would have been saved or one less act of evil would have been done. I believe that we are in the best possible world of free creatures and the most amount of people will be saved. And so that's just another uh, belief there that I have. And I could probably back that up in scripture. It would just be far off from where we're at. And I actually get that from Leibniz and William Lane Craig and others. Okay, let's talk about the problem of evil. Here's the way our book gives it to us. And then I'll give it to you the way Epicurus gave it, uh, uh, defined it back in the day, three, third uh, century BC. Premise one, if God were all powerful, he would be able to prevent evil. Premise two, if God were all good, he would desire to prevent evil. Conclusion, so if God were both all powerful and all good, there would be no evil. Premise three, but there is evil. Conclusion two, therefore there is no all-powerful, all-good God. Here's the way Epicurus did it, which I think is a lot more simpler. If an omnipotent, which is all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and all-good, omnibelevenant God exists, then evil does not. There is evil in the world. Therefore, an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibelevenant, but benevolent God does not exist. Okay, who wants to tell me right now what the problem with this is before I even get into it? Let's just see. I know you guys probably have looked over my notes, so don't feel so bad. Don't feel it's, bad. it's not called cheating, but just tell me if you got it already before I even talk about it. Who's got it? Is that Chris? Because I hear the echo. Yeah. Um, I, did, I didn't look at the notes, but... but um... Ultimately, I would have to ask how you even know of what good and evil uh, is. This is probably Boom. the first thing that I would, yeah. you know. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going, baby. I just got excited. Yeah, uh, I would have to question the person. How are, how are they defining good and evil and what and what gives them that idea of good and evil? Exactly. Um, there's also another interesting thing. Yeah. There's yeah, another I got to stop on there. 
I got to stop go ahead, there, man, Chris. Bro. Just hold your points. I'm sorry. I just I, I don't know if I'm going to have enough time to get to everything, but I just wanted to see if you guys caught it. And that is it. The first thing that I want you guys to see, and that this is the reason why most philosophically minded atheists don't even bring this up anymore because they've gotten rocked so hard. Um, thankfully, most people on the streets are not philosophically minded atheists, so we can help them to get out of that mindset without them trying to be sassy and preventing the truth from coming to them. But because uh, they haven't had it rocked the way we can rock it. But the philosophical world has had it rocked so much that they don't even use it anymore. What they just try to say is it's and I'll get into some of these videos in the future. I mean, uh, later on today where they're just going to say the you know, probability, maybe I can't say for sure God doesn't exist, but it just seems like it wouldn't have been this kind of a world. And maybe we don't know if all if every idea of God or all gods, quote unquote, don't exist. But we know the Christian God doesn't exist because it seems to contradict itself when it comes to evil. They'll they'll try to skirt around these issues because they can't make this definite claim anymore because we have rocked it so hard, which is without God define evil. You just you just shot your own foot right here. You just you just cut off your own branch. You said there cannot be a God and evil. And now you just said that there is evil. Well then without a God, how do you even know what evil is? You just argued in a circle. If there's no God, there's no evil. So there's not even an argument here. You as an atheist can't make an argument from evil. And we wouldn't even know what it was if your worldview was right. But thankfully, their worldview is wrong. And so let us show them the problem with the problem of evil. Number one, which Chris just hit on, and I'm glad he could do that without the notes, that is that the non-theistic worldview can't even define evil. Evil doesn't exist, nor can be defined without there being a God, because God is good. Good is God in the sense that God grounds the good. He's a person. He's not just a characteristic of what we would call God, a God, a good. He is God and good exists. But literally, God is good and good is God. Good is God. God is good and good exists because of God. Um, and that's why the Bible says God is love. Now, once again, when we say love is God or God is love, we're not talking about like every emotion of love is like God and like he's somehow in everybody's heart just that way. What we're saying is if there was no God, the actual attribute of God could not exist. The actual, uh, the actual attribute of goodness could not exist. It only exists because there's a God. Okay, and so what is the difference between right and wrong? This is Alex Rosenberg and the Atheist Guide to Reality. So he'll just help us out if there's ever an um, uh, a, a inconsistent atheist. Alex Rosenberg to the rescue. Here we go. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? He answers the question in his book. There is no moral difference between them. So according to Alex Rosenberg, there is no real evil. There is no real good. These are all just illusions. Okay. So the very fact, and I was just listening to a debate today from Frank Turek. I have it right here. Okay. I have the debate uh, right here. You guys can listen to. Dude, for, for him to debate the atheist, the atheist basically had to give up the belief of evil. And then once the guy did that, then what are we even talking about anymore? And then, like I said, his best argument after that was, well, 
the Christian God doesn't seem to be all that good. So I can at least say that the Christian God isn't a good God in that sense. But then once again, where do you even get your standard from to judge our God? And then they'll try to say, well, I try to use his own standards within his own book. But then they start contradicting themselves because they're still, you know, putting on top of the scripture their ideas of what God should have done with the Canaanites. So they'll say, like, God shouldn't have done this to the Canaanites, destroy man, woman and child. He could have just killed man, not woman and child. But once again, who cares? Who cares? Where is your book? Give us your standard. Well, I don't have one but I'm just going to try to tear down yours and say, you shouldn't use that for good. Cause I could create, you know, in his mind, like he didn't say this, but I've heard people say it. like in my mind, I can create a God that's better than your God. So that would probably be the better God than your God. But once again, your God doesn't exist. Your God doesn't have any moral attributes. Your God doesn't have any proof just making up a God and saying, now this is the God. Now you have to, now you've come out of the atheist position. Now you're a theist. And now we treat you as a theist then. Let's go book in the man. Let's go book in the man. Show us the proof for your God. Show us who your God is. Show us his revelations throughout the world. You just can't make up a God and try to say this is a better God than your God. It's silliness. That's just plain make-believe. So our God does what he does, and it is good because goodness comes from him. And then they get into the uh, euthyphro dilemma, and I didn't really talk about it here, and that is, does good exist because God exists? Or let me back up. Let me just put it up here for you guys. The euthyphro dilemma. Um, and this will be helpful. Euthyphro dilemma. And that's basically the idea that um, euthyphro, that what comes first, God or good? And that's why I was going back and forth that the attributes are the same. Okay, so let me give you the euthyphro dilemma. Okay, it um, here we go. Oh, here we go. It came from Socrates. Is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or it or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Here is a, a more modern version. Is what is morally good commanded by God because it is morally good, or is it morally good because it is commanded by God? So they're trying to get you to find a contradiction in the goodness here. So is what is morally good commanded by God because it's morally good? So if God is commanding things because it's morally good, then that means there's a standard outside of God that God has to acknowledge and be obedient to. So now he's not really in charge of defining goodness. Something else defines what goodness is, and God plays by those rules. And if you go, no, 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 because God says it, because God commands it, it's good. Well, then God, God could command rape, and now it's good, because whatever he commands, you said is good. So good is arbitrary. So which one is it? Is there an actual standard of good that he lives up to that's outside of him? that he has to obey to show that he's good? Or does he just command whatever he wants and whatever he wants just happens to now change to being good? So he could just say tomorrow, go eat your children. And now that's good because God said it. And the problem with that is, is we wouldn't know good without God. That's why I said from the very beginning, the, the dilemma is actually a false dilemma. And so a false dilemma is one that, um, uh, uh, 
rids of a third or fourth or multiple options. It's trying to say there's only two dilemmas and so uh, two issues. And so the idea is, um, do you want to be rich or do you want to be poor? You know, or, or excuse me, rather, do you want to be rich or do you want to be happy? You may say, well, I want both. It's not a dilemma. I, why can't I be rich and happy? You know, and so it's 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 another option. I can be rich and happy. And so the idea here is not that God needs another standard of good or that God can just call whatever he wants good. No, God is good. God is the very thing that is good. Without him, we would not know good. So once again, it's like putting it towards light. Is light light because God says it's light so he could call darkness light? Or does he have to follow an outside standard of what light is and then live up to that standard? No, light is what it is because he is light and light now has a definition. And so God is good because God does good things because he is good and he will always be good. So God will never command raping, eating your children or doing any of those things because God is always good. He is good and good goodness comes from him and goodness would be meaningless without him. So those are some things to think about as we continue on in our discussion with the problem of evil. And then the third, uh, the second thing is, is that the Christian worldview, we're the only ones that actually can say evil serves the good purpose in God's plan. So we are not like the Calvinists saying God creates evil. God does it purposely because he likes it. And this was his choice. He chooses evil just like he chooses good. No, God sovereignly chose us to choose between good and evil didn't want us to do it, but when we did it, he was powerful enough to use all of our evil choices for his good. So now, if we just, for the sake of argument, let them have an, have a world of evil without God, which I don't like to give them that sake of the argument. I'll frame it differently in a moment how I like to do it. But just for the sake of argument, now we would say to them, if you have evil in the world and no God, you are pitied. I pity you because Hitler won. And I know you guys have heard me talk about this in church, right? Like during some of my sermons, I say, if there is no God and you have a problem with evil, you lose because the rapist won, the murderer won, Saddam Hussein won, because there's no justice after this life then for them. There's nothing that is for uh, uh, holding them accountable. And all of their victims, all the people who suffered innocently, they lost. They don't get another chance. This was their 80 years, and it's over for them. But what does the Christian say? What Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So God works out the evil for their good. He's the father to the fatherless, the helper to the oppressed. All people who have suffered, he makes it right in the world to come. And all people who have caused the suffering, Jesus says, it is my, do not avenge because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Jesus says, vengeance is mine. And he will take out his wrath upon Hitler and those who have done evil things in the world. So, so evil serves a temporary purpose to show forth the, the judgment of God, show forth the power of God. God uses it for his good. And so I always like to say, yeah, the Christian is the only one that can say, I acknowledge the problem of evil, tell you where it came from. No other religion can do it through the story. First of all, we believe our Bible is true, but, but 
even in their imitations of our truth, all the other stories lack, you know, Hinduism, Islam, whatever. They just they don't take it. Even Judaism doesn't see the full revelation because they don't see Christ in the story. It, it is our belief and truth that brings the problem to an end. So, yes, is there a problem with evil? Yes, but Jesus is the problem solver. Where was the problem solved? On the cross. On the cross, God in the flesh took our sins, took all the wrath of God, and brought forth the justice of God, forgiveness for man's sins, defeat of the devil, defeat of sin, and gives the power of new life to those who were once sinners. And so the problem of evil is resolved in the cross. Redemption and heaven come through the cross, the new heavens and new earth ruling and reigning with him. This all comes because Jesus solves the problem. So once again, there is no problem with evil if you're an atheist. That's just, that's Alex Rosenberg. That's just common sense. And even if you could have evil without God, you're pitiful because you have no solution to it. So what is the way that I like to say it? And you guys have heard me preach it. I like to say, no, I don't have a problem with evil. Jesus solved it. If you don't have God, you have no definition of evil, and you are pitiful because evil wins. Don't let evil win. Come to Jesus and the cross and see evil defeated because that's already been done. And part of that being done is going to be judgment day, and you'll be cast into the lake of fire. We won't have to deal with you anymore because a lot of times when people say, well, why doesn't he just get rid of the evil? Okay, how about he starts with you? How about he gets rid of you, you know? And so uh, the cross is God getting rid of the evil in us before he gets rid of the evil people, you know, gets rid of the people, evil people among us. So we need all of us to have the evil rid out of our hearts before God comes and rids us off his planet and puts us into the lake of fire. Okay, I do just have a moment right here to stop and talk about this, Chris. I'll come back to you now. Uh, what did you want to add to this? Sorry about that. Um, just one of the thoughts that that uh, had come to mind uh, in the in the conversation about, um, you know, like like when we say like, well, you know, like uh, if God is good, then why would he allow these different things? Uh, one of the things that that comes to mind when before they even define good and evil, it's like you, you come to a place where now you have to say, you know, uh, that a good God would do this. You would have to say, you know, that. For sure. You know exactly. what I mean? That, that God would be good. So that was one of the things I kind of wanted to bring up. Yep. That's that's um, really and, good, and was, too. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish. No, sorry. No, no. I was just I was just saying that's that's pretty much the place where you have to go and you would end up either now claiming that you now are you can actually you would be in a place of pride now because you would have to now say you are greater than God and now you have to prove it. So it's a place that you don't, you wouldn't want to kind of be, you know, it's a conversation you wouldn't really want to have, you know, yeah, from, that, they, from that. So. Yep. Thank you. And then they will try to say they are better morally than our God. They will do that. But, but what you do is you show them that without them having a standard of good that God has already given them, they can even bring into question our God. So it's like, by what standard are right. you judging our God? So I like to keep it right there. I don't like to give them the opportunity to play the role of God and judge God. So, uh, but no, the first point that you said was awesome because the only way you could say God should have done such and such is that if intrinsically 
you had a sense of justice, you had a sense of goodness. Like when they start giving examples, like if, if God, you know, if I saw somebody getting raped, I couldn't stand back and not do anything. I would, I would have to jump in. Even if they hurt me, I would have to jump in. But God watches people get raped every day. So, you know, how can he watch that? Well, the moment they do that, they're now saying they would do something better than God. But hold on. Why do you even care if that person's getting raped, that child's getting raped? Why do you care? Because you can't use that standard now to judge our God by without explaining why you even have that. Because without God, again, you don't have a definition of evil. And dogs watch each other, eat eat each other all the time. I was just watching lions attack and kill one of their own. and Not a problem. So what's the difference here? So everywhere they go, uh, they run into what we've learned before, which I I put back up here again, uh, the moral argument. They always come back to the moral argument. So... uh, so I have Craig's moral argument here. So we'll, if we have time, we'll get into that. Okay. So now here's the free will defense by Dr. Alvin Plantinga. Let me uh, actually play this first, and then we'll go through it. I think that will be better. Let me play it first. I'm sorry that I didn't have this ready. I think I can do this quite simply here. When you guys um, can hear it, uh, let me know by just giving me a thumbs up, okay? So let me know if you guys can hear this. The presence of evil, pain, and suffering in our world is the most persistent argument raised against the belief in God. Usually it goes something like this. Put your hands up now! An all-knowing God would know evil exists. An all-loving God would want to prevent evil from existing. An all-powerful God could prevent evil from existing, but evil does exist. Now, given that the fourth proposition would appear to be undeniable, it can be inferred that one of the other three must be false, and thus there cannot be an all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God. Checkmate. Or at least some people think that. However, not too long ago, an American philosopher named Alvin Carl Plantica put forth a new proposition that is intended to demonstrate that it is logically possible for such a god to create a world that does contain evil. This is how he summarized his defense. A world containing creatures who are significantly free and freely perform more good than evil actions is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Now, God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to do only what is right. For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free after all. They do not do what is right freely. To create creatures capable of moral... Therefore, he must create creatures capable of moral evil. And he can give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. C.S. Lewis would agree, saying... Imagine a wooden beam became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon, and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. If the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible, for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. Continuing his defense, Plantinga says, As it turned out, sadly enough, some of the free creatures God created went wrong in the exercise of their freedom. This is the source of moral evil. 
The fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence nor against His goodness, for He could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good. So, even though God is all-powerful, it is possible that it was not in His power to create a world containing moral good, but no moral evil. Therefore, there is no logical inconsistency involved when God, although wholly good, creates a world of free creatures who chose to do evil. Right, so I think that really adds the clarity to what you're just going to hear right now, and then we will uh, go into uh, more further detail on what he actually explains when he's asked more questions on it. So um, let me show you my notes again here. Let me make it a little bit easier. Well, I should just do desktop share. Let me just share my desktop for today since it's a little bit off, since uh, uh, I couldn't get my website to work today. Okay, so here's the free will defense. Very simple. Here's, here's my way of doing it. I think you guys will like it because it's really simple. Premise one, God gave man the choice between good and evil. Man chose evil. Therefore, God has allowed evil for his greater purpose. Boom, shakalaka. <laughs> well, pretty simple. You know, there's, to me, it is not as hard as people think it is. Now, one of the things that you'll understand is that there is an emotional aspect to it. Yes, it's emotional if you're debating an atheist and they tell you a story like that. You know, well, I wouldn't want to watch anybody raped and God watches every single rape, every child molestation. Every, and then they go through this whole thing and maybe they'll tell the story about Noah's Ark, especially if you're debating them or something, you know, like publicly. And, you know, children are beating against Noah's Ark. Let me in. And supposedly it's so big and there's all these animals. All he had to do is just let down a rope and save one or two more. But he doesn't do it, you know. And then hell, it's not, you know, you live for 80 years, but you suffer not just for 80, not just 100, not for a thousand, not for a million, not for a billion, but year after year for eternity. And so all you have to do to sift through all of that is say, who cares? And what? What's your point? Without God, you don't get to have any problems with this. You have to be reduced down to what Alex Rosenberg said. It doesn't matter to you. Stop pretending that it does. But here's the thing, and this is really what I like to do, is to turn it back on them, is I say, why does it matter to you so much? Ask yourself that question. And even in this debate I was listening to with Frank Turek and, and this link right here, um, the atheist even admits it is such a strong desire on the inside of us to feel justice, such a strong desire to want wrongs to be right and afterlife to sort it out and for all of these things to come to pass. But that's his, his excuses. But that's just our evolutionary desire to hope for more because we're scared of, the, you know, not existing after we die. And he even said in this debate, he said the thing that messes with me every time that my biggest question is, I can't prove my own existence. <laughs> now, once again, I mean, out of the mouth of the fool comes the folly. I mean, he even said, I know I cannot prove my existence. Atheists talk like this all the time, too, when you really look at their work or hear them talking to their own people. Because Alex, Rosenberg, Alex Rosenberg's book is to his own people. So he's not uh, trying to 
talk to Christians. He's actually talking to his own people in that book. And they're honest, man. They're honest. There is no moral right and wrong. You don't like that? Take Prozac. You, there's no you. You're just an illusion. You don't even have free will. I mean, dude, and, and the fact that they don't see the contradiction of this goes back to Romans chapter 1. They're living with suppression. So what do we say to the person that says, oh, man, what about the rape, the child, all of this? Well, the first thing that we have to explain to them, it's an emotional thing. That's, you know, that's just the first thing that we need to say is hold on. That's emotion. That doesn't change truth. Just because it feels so bad when you think about it doesn't change the truth. Number two, the reasons why you feel bad, like C.S. Lewis said, must be evidence you were made for more. So if you look at the world and you're at, you know, as uh, Corey Tim Boone said, and I, I keep this here and, and C.S. Lewis says something very similar. You know, if you look at the world and you're distressed, if you look within yourself and you're depressed, look to God and you'll be at rest. And C.S. Lewis said it very similar, like, you know, we all have a God-shaped hole inside of us. But he went a little bit deeper. He said that uh, it seems like God whispers in pleasure, but he screams in pain. I am here. I am real. I offer my help, you know. So like when we're in pleasure, we don't hear God telling us how he, how, how real he is, the meaning of life, existence. It seems like we don't need him as much. But in pain, God screams to us, I am here. And that is the reason that we know something is wrong. We know, just like with the moral argument, you say morals are relative until somebody steps on your, your shoe in the, in the bus, and it's the same thing. You say there's really no good and evil until you see evil and you're grieved in your heart and you don't know why. It's because you were made for more than this. You are in a fallen world. That's why you can see what seems to be like contradictions, the beauty of a sunrise, but then the destruction of war, the, the beauty of a child being born, but the, the absolute just nastiness of rape and, and all of that and incest and all that, it's because you're in a fallen world. You're in a place of pain. You're in the shadow lands. You can see the good and the evil. You're seeing it over and over again. And the problem is we become our own worst enemies and we don't know how to rid ourselves of the evil. And, and we're not as good as we think we are. Every time we make up our own rules, our own morality, we break those codes. Everybody even breaks the most lenient codes that they have. Even the Nazi Germanies, uh, Nazi Germans broke their own codes. You know, it's like even in the gangs, they break their own code. No matter how wicked you are, at some point you'll say, you know, uh, here's what I want to do for the people I love, you know, so I'll do this to everybody else. But then for the Nazis, I'll do this. But then they turned on each other, you know, in the gang, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill the other gang member. I'll butcher them like these ones from Central America, you know, those crazy ones with the tattoos all over their face, the M18s. What are those guys called? Somebody tell me. I always forget. The MS-13s. MS-13. Here, they're so crazy, but, but inside our gang, we're going to take care of each other. No, you still don't do that. They cheat on each other, you know, and it's like nobody keeps their own codes, not even Satanists. Even the Satanists that I would meet downtown in New Orleans, they, they had problems with each other. And it's like, hey, what do you expect? You know, you think they would say to each other, well, what do you expect? We're Satanists. <laughs> we're not supposed to treat each other good. But at some point, you're saying, I, 
I don't want you to cheat on my wife. You can do like literally the first command of Satanism is do what thou wilt. Okay, well, the first thing I want to do is eat you, Antoine LaVey. No, 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 no. You, you do what thou wilt, except eat me, you know? <laughs> and I know it's, you know, crazy when you think of these things, but it's funny. And the Bible actually says God laughs at the fool and their folly. Let me just go over to this real quick so you guys don't think I'm laughing in the wrong sense. And it's actually a biblical sense that we laugh at these things. Like the one person who said, and it, this is not in size thing, but I've seen it on a board before, uh, question everything, man. And then somebody wrote underneath it. It was on a, um, it was, uh, on a, a tunnel. It was graffiti. Question everything. And then underneath it, why? Question mark. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's just circular. And people don't understand. They think they're so deep. Question everything, man. Okay, well, I'm going to question that. Why should I do that, you know? Well, here's Psalms 2, what God says he does when they talk like this. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break off their chains, throw off their shackles. You notice this is plural here. God the Father and God the Son. Let's, let's break off all these things. We don't need the Father and the Son. Now watch this. The one enthroned in heaven does what? Laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, like Elijah on the temple mount. I mean, on the on the on, on the on the mountain there, uh, challenging the false prophets of Baal. You know, scream louder! Where's your God? Is he using the bathroom? Come on, cut yourself. See what happens then. <laughs> Pour out your blood and see if he cares. You know, this is literally how God gets with the people because sometimes they just don't see it. And the Lord laughs and he goes, okay, angels, look at them. They think they think their little rebellion down there. I mean, literally, it's like these ants over here. Like imagine there's, you know, three or four ants and they're saying, I'm going to cast off Joe Y. Rostick's rules, you know? And I'm just like, you ant, you know, seriously. And it's like, that's not even close to the comparison. God to us, you know, he rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, once again, we are presuppositionalists and, and Alvin Plantinga is real similar to our position. Um, and he uses classical arguments like we do as well. But remember, we argue from the presupposition, God is real, the Bible is true, and without those two facts, you can't know anything, and especially when it comes to the argument of evil. Now, let me just say this before I play some of these videos here, um, because I think that's going to run a little bit over our time. It's a little bit more 10 minutes left in our lecture, but as you can see, I'm already trying to involve some of these videos here. Uh, let me just say this. How do we respond real quick just to the emotional appeal? Okay, so God is watching the child being raped and, and all of these things. Okay, what we now show them is that the cross was the biggest deal ever. Okay, like they don't understand the cross if they don't get it to how that applies to these things because it bothered God so much. He took on flesh and died at the hands of his own creation. Okay, like that right there needs to match all of the emotion. On the cross, we believe literally Jesus is suffering rape. We believe Jesus feels it 
on behalf of us. That's why it needed to be God in the flesh. The infinite God of eternity takes the finite, though it's massive, but it's still finite, the massive amount of pain, every instance on him, downloaded. Now think about that. All in Isaiah 53, it's there. And people are reading this, and they're not even getting it, right? I mean, they're hearing the prophecy. How does someone get get my pain? How does someone carry my sorrows, right? Surely he took our pain, bore our suffering. Do you know now, for the first time ever, just a little bit, we got a revy of this 21st century? How, how does my computer carry thousands of bits of information, Think, think about pain and experiences of pain as bits of information. Do you know how many bits of information your one computer can hold on it now? It can hold literally millions of bits of information. Let me just give you the example. One gigabyte to what they call, um, what they call, what is it, um, to megabyte, one gigabyte to megabyte, and there's one that's even smaller here, let's say pebubyte, right? Look how big this number gets. It's eight, well, that's, uh, that's how small it is. Let me see here, bit, one bit of information. Okay, so one gigabyte equals eight, with nine zeros after it of bits of information. Okay, is everybody with me on that? You have, my computer has a thousand gigabytes. Okay, a thousand gigabytes is eight with 12 zeros after it. So just to give you an idea of what that would look like, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, that's how big that number is, okay? Now, let me just give you an example here. Uh, number of, say, particles in the universe, in the universe, right? So just give you an idea here, what they, what they say, how big these numbers are. I'm trying to find this here. How many particles are there in the universe? They have these kind of like huge, okay. So they believe there are 10... 10 to the 80th power of particles in the universe, 10 to the nine photons or whatever these, you know, just these huge, large numbers, you know, 80 zeros after it. Okay, you're talking, my computer, just watch this, just my computer alone has 12 zeros after it, right? So you're talking, all the computers of the world probably have more bits then there are zeros here. Like, I don't know what it takes to get to 80, but I just, I'm just trying to give you the idea. Like, we're getting to the idea where these bits of information, let's just see how many, how many, here we go. I mean, it just takes a long time to get up to these. These numbers are huge. And I'm not even trying to make a big point about the particles. My just thing is this. We handle a thousand bits, uh, I mean, a um, thousand gigabytes is whatever number this is, let's just say eight quadrillion, it's, it's bigger than that, but whatever huge number this is of bits, and yet it can hold it. What do you think heaven's download did 
for every pain, every suffering, every instant of it. I mean, all of it was put onto Jesus. And we can understand that because we now know that computers can hold this much bits of information. So in the natural is as it is in the spiritual. And I think, number one, they don't understand the cross. God literally downloaded, just for, forget my little thing with the, the particles in the universe, but I'm just trying to show you like how big of a number just your computer is with bits. But here's the point. Jesus downloaded everything on that cross. So he felt it. There is nothing he did not feel. The second thing is, no matter how much pain they suffered, the child locked in the closet, beat and raped for, say, 80 years, you know, for what years, the Holocaust victim, whatever, is nothing but a drop of sand compared to eternity and what God makes up for it in the end. And so ultimately, this earth wasn't for human happiness. This earth was to now be for God's glory, to teach us between good and evil. So in the test, some people may suffer longer, but literally in comparison to what God gives us after the test, it is like a drop of water to all the water in the oceans. Okay, so they don't understand the cross, and they don't understand how God, in the end, and makes it right, and how big eternity is, okay? So keep those thoughts in mind as we go now deeper to uh, Alvin Plantinga here. Hold on, let me make sure. I want to make sure you guys can hear this. Okay, good. Here we go. Problem of evil can you guys is hear it? probably the strongest up. argument against okay. the existence of a God who is both omnipotent and all good. Let's talk about evil. First of all, there's an enormous amount in the world, but there are different kinds. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's true that this this is a problem. It's been a problem. I mean, you put it as um, an argument against the existence of God, which is certainly how it's been put many times. It's also a problem for believers in God who don't um, they don't think there's any particular argument here. Say, take Job for example. Job was afflicted by God. He he said he wanted to go to court with God. He said, but I know that you'd be the judge and jury and executioner and jailer and all that. So that's not going to work, you know. And, but he even adopts a kind of uh, sarcastic tone towards God. He says, if I smile all the time, you'll still treat me this miserable way. Why are you doing this to me, God? So he doesn't ever uh, think, well, maybe there isn't any such person as God. He just gets angry with God and can't imagine why God does all this stuff, permits all this stuff to happen to him. So it's a it's a problem for believers, uh, apart from any tendency it might have to show that there isn't any such person okay. as God. But it also, as you say, has been uh, used as an argument for a long time, going back to Hume, but actually going back much further, against the very existence of God. And uh, your question was, what kinds of evil are there? Well, there are these two basically different kinds. There is what you might call moral evil, which would be um, suffering or bad things resulting from human beings freely doing something wrong. So, for example, many of the world's uh, greatest ills are, are cases of moral evil, concentration camps, Hitler, all those sorts of things that happen in Stalin's Russia and so on. This, these would be examples of moral evil. But there are also cases of what people call natural evil, 
where the term evil doesn't really apply quite as well because it's not that that say if there's an earthquake this earthquake is being evil I mean it's it happened bad things happen there people get killed and there are diseases and the like and and it's not due to some human being um, uh, doing something wrong or take, making a wrong choice it's due to just these natural occurrences so there's natural evil and moral evil so we certainly agree there's a very large amount of both uh, you've defined difference between a so-called theodicy and a defense uh, how do you differentiate well uh, when we're thinking about an argument against God's existence from evil the question might be why does God permit evil why does he permit it a theodicy would be an attempt to answer that question and say well here's why God permits it for the following reasons whereas a defense could be offered by somebody who says um, I don't know what God's reasons are maybe his reasons are totally beyond us but at least I can show you that there isn't any contradiction between the existence of evil on the one hand and God's being uh, holy good and omniscient and omnipotent on the other hand so the theodicy attempts to say what God's reason is a defense is more modest you might say well it says what God's reasons could be what they might be right so how do you approach it I um, I've always I've always thought it was really hard for us to say what God's reasons would actually be it looks and if you look at lots of the things that happens a lot of the things the Holocaust for example what could his reason be one just doesn't know what the reason is there so I've instead um, offered a defense the free will defense with respect to the problem of evil and the basic idea is to show contrary to what some people say that there's no contradiction in asserting both that God exists and is omnipotent omniscient and holy good and that there is such a thing as evil various philosophers have said that there is such a contradiction and um, I argue that there isn't by virtue of the free will defense how do you do that well the free will defense um, roughly goes like this God is, um, is omnipotent, but that doesn't mean that he can bring about just every possible state of affairs. So, for example, he can't necessarily, he can't cause it to be the case that I freely do something or other, freely give, say, $100 to my church. He can't cause me to do that freely. If he causes me to do it, I don't do it freely. So there are some possible states of affairs he can't uh, bring about it all depends on what I would freely do in that circumstance so it's not up to him by himself it's up to me too what, <laughs> what I would freely do in that circumstance so the free will defense says that um, first of all there are possible worlds in which there are free creatures who only do what is right but maybe those worlds are ones that God can't create or can't. these are possible worlds that, that yeah. could conceivably exist right things could have been this way it could have been that there were free creatures human-like creatures or human beings who always freely do only what is right but maybe uh, maybe those worlds are ones that it wasn't within God's power to make actual so he couldn't choose to have those worlds be actual and uh, that would be if that were the case it would that would be because what those free creatures because of what those free creatures would do if in fact God were to create them 
So supposing he were to create Adam and Eve in the garden, let's say. Well, um, it could be that if he creates them in the garden and leaves them free, they are going to do the wrong thing. And if that's so, then God can't make actual any of the possible worlds in which Adam and Eve are in the garden, but do the right thing. That's just not a possibility for him. Well, because if you have all these infinite number of different worlds, why wouldn't in some of them they do the right thing? Well, there are possible worlds in which they do the right thing, but it might be that um, if he were to, let's say, strongly actualize their environment, the world, you know, the, the being in the garden and so on, then just as a matter of fact, they wouldn't do the right thing. As a matter of fact, they would do the wrong thing. Yeah. Sure, there are possible worlds where they do the right thing in that circumstance, but as a matter of fact, what they would do is the wrong thing. <laughs> and if that's the case, then there's a certain, we might call it, counterfactual of freedom about them. Namely, that if Adam and Eve were in such and such a circumstance, they would freely do the wrong thing. And God knows this counterfactual in advance, what would happen if he were to create them in that circumstance, that they would freely do the wrong thing. But it's not up to him to change that counterfactual. He can't. He can't. That, he's, just, he's just stuck with that counterfactual. That's what's going to happen if he creates Adam and Eve. They're going to do the wrong thing. Well, that means then that he can't create any possible world in which Adam and Eve um, are there and in the garden and the like and do the right thing. And it could be that that this, uh, it's logically possible. I don't say it's true at all, of course. It may be wildly implausible, but it could be that. We're going to keep listening. We just got about five minutes left. Don't get lost in it. I can see um, he's getting a little bit deep. I'll play one more video after this, write down any questions, and then I'm going to go over some of the things he's saying here. And there's also a part two to this that I have in the notes you guys can watch on your own time. But uh, just write down any questions, think through what he's saying, and uh, we'll be right back here together in just a moment. For any free creature you pick out, if God were to create that creature and put him in, this, uh, in, uh, in any particular circumstance you mentioned, any possible world you mentioned, that creature would do at least one wrong thing. Any creature like that would suffer from what I called trance world depravity. A wonderful phrase. <laughs> right. So Calvinists talk about total depravity. Uh, trance world depravity is broader, but not as deep. Total depravity means that uh, all the various parts of your nature are corrupted by sin. Transferal depravity says only that for any world in which God could have actualized you, you would perform at least one wrong action. And, and that, therefore, God could not create a possible world in which there was no evil. Therefore, he could not create a possible world with in which will. there were free creatures but no evil. Hmm. Any, any world he created that had free creatures in it would contain some evil. So that... Um, Putting up with evil or permitting evil would be a necessary condition of having free creatures, and maybe that was a, 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 bar, a good exchange. Maybe the price was right, you might say, from God's <laughs> point of view. Now, you characterize this as, as a defense more than a theodicy. Yeah. It's a, it's a defense because I say possibly all creatures suffer from transferal depression. Yeah, theodicy is an argument for the proof of God. A defense is simply just saying whatever people are doing to attack, we can defend. I don't say that they actually do. If, if I knew that they actually did, then, then I'd have a theodicy. Hmm. But I don't know that. I mean, how would I know a thing like that? As a defense more than a theodicy. Yeah. 
It's a, it's a defense because I say possibly all creatures suffer from transworld depravity. I don't say that they actually do. If, if I knew that they actually did, then, then I'd have a theodicy. Hmm. But I don't know that. I mean, how would I know a thing like that? Uh, but it is possible. And if it is possible, then it's also possible both that God be holy, good, and all-powerful, and all-knowing, and that there be evil. Now, one of the changes in the atheistic use of, the, of from their point of view, the argument from evil, would be that you and others have, have eliminated the logical uh, requirement that if you have evil, then you have no God. But you've not dealt with the magnitude and the enormity, so probabilistically, there's probably no God, even though logically you cannot exclude the possibility. Remember how I talked about that? They, they all now acknowledge that the logical framework of Epicurus's argument is invalid. It's not a valid argument because of the reasons he's just saying. Um, and then now they're just they're, their only refuge is to basically say it's improbable or the God of Christianity doesn't look like the best candidate. So I think he's going to answer this a little bit of this, but a lot more of that goes into part two. But let, let's see where he goes, because I can't remember. That's certainly uh, that's the way things have gone. So that up till, say, 30 or 40 years ago, the argument from evil was usually stated as a deductive argument. Mm. stated that there's just incompatibility, inconsistency between these two things. Now it's not put that way anymore because most people have uh, more or less agreed that the free will defense actually does work with respect <laughs> to the logical problem of evil. But now, now the suggestion is right that uh, the existence of all this evil just makes it vastly unlikely, extremely unlikely, that there is such a person as God. And uh, there, again, um, I think it's important to think about the following sorts of things. If God had a reason for permitting all this evil, well, that would be, that would be fine. That's what you'd expect, and there'd be a reason for it. Uh, there wouldn't be any problem of evil, so to speak. The problem is that we can't see what these reasons are, if God does have a reason. What, why does he permit these? Okay, so I'll stop here. Um, but yes, I think we do have a reason why. I think we do. And the reason why is what the Bible says, is that he works out all things for his good. It was his plan uh, to have a people that would freely choose him. And that's why. So I think we can take it one step further and take it out of the probability. Um, let me just let me just let him finish then, because I want to, I'm actually curious to what he says, because he doesn't give into that argument. He, uh, he'll still say something I just can't remember, so now I kind of want to watch. Terrible things that happened. I mean, at Virginia Tech recently, and, um, although, I mean, there's a, such a long list, such a long litany of evils. Why does he permit these things? Well, I think believers in God have to admit we don't know. Don't know why God permits those in any detail, at least. But the question is whether that makes it unlikely that God does have a reason. I mean, suppose God does have a reason. Is it likely that I would know? Would you and I be the first person he'd tell? Um, maybe his reasons are totally beyond our ken. Maybe we can't even, uh, maybe we just don't know enough about what his circumstances are like. That's right. Okay, so I remember what he said. Yeah, he agrees with us that uh, God does have a reason, and that is in the general sense what we're saying, is that, yes, God does have a reason. There's no evil. There is no purposeless pain. Let's put it that way. Every pain has a purpose. 
But what he is saying we can't know this side of eternity is what every pain, uh, what every purpose and every pain is. We don't know that. And that is true. Okay. All right. So to basically uh, summarize his argument, God gives us the choice between good and evil. We choose evil. Therefore, God has allowed evil for his greater purpose. Uh, when he was talking about the different worlds and possibilities and, and the price being right, I, I like to use that same kind of lingo as well because, you know, I've learned it from him and Craig, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. So the basic idea is God wanted free creatures. That's why we're here. And he knew when he made free creatures, there was going to have to be a cost to it. It would cost him coming in the flesh. It would cost us going through evil. But in the end, he would have people who freely chose him. And that was what he wanted. So it was his prerogative to want people to freely cho choose him. And he knew the outcome of that would be a lot of pain and suffering for others. But more importantly, it would be more it would be pain and suffering for him because I believe he suffered the most on the cross. And yet that was worth it to him. And then in the end, no one would be in their ultimate uh, destination, heaven or hell, based on his choice. It would be their choice. And so his justice would be served, no injustice in him. And what would actually happen that he would take pleasure in and we would take pleasure in is having all of eternity with him. So the way I like to look at it is that when people say, okay, Joe, I'll buy into everything that you're saying. Uh, but why did he have to allow all the suffering and and couldn't he have just did something other than this plan and had people to love him? And I say, no, he could not have had free creatures unless we had everything that came along with it. Trans world damnation, I believe, as well. Uh, we would all fall in eventually over time. There's just no way around it. And then if somebody says, well, I didn't get a choice in this. I just would rather have been a robot and never been in hell, never experienced pain and never did any of this. And that is the one place where now we say God is sovereign and he does what he's want. he wants. Yes, you did not have a choice in being created, but now you have to play by his rules. So it it is all. And, and this is true, whether you believe in God or not, you're already here. So there's nothing you can do about that now. So whether you're an atheist, a believer in God, it doesn't matter. You're here now. What are you going to do about it? And so for the Christian, we say to them, you're here because you're in God's world. You're in his creation. We say, choose him, and this will be the best thing for you uh, because you don't get the option now of not existing. Even the person, like we've said before, who says, well, I'm going to end my life, you know, uh, I'm going to take my life. Okay, well, the moment you did that, you just sent yourself to eternity a lot faster because your life, physical body, is not all that you are. So like it or not, you are here now. But the beautiful thing of this is, is that God is the lover of our soul. And so when we do come to him in humility, we see him for the great beauty that he is. So no one uh, coming to God will be disappointed or be like, well, I mean, guess I didn't have a choice. It was this or hell, you know? No, it's really, it really makes sense to your nature because you were made to love God. You were made so you're not just here made to love sin. That's why sin always leads to death, death in relationships, death in mental well-being, death in physical things. You know, you were really meant to function in the presence of God. So when you just humble yourself and get around him and taste and see he's good, this will be the best thing for you. But ultimately, if you don't want it, you're you don't have to get it. You're not going to be forced into it. OK, so. We have 15 minutes left. 
I'm ready to start taking some questions. Um, we'll come back to Chris in just a moment. Chris, I see you have another question here or a comment that I'm looking at in the chat, but I want to get to others. Okay, guys, let's go. You got 15 minutes. It is your time to shine. We didn't go over the review questions. Okay, let me go over those. Thank you for reminding me. Explain the supposed problem of evil. The, the supposed problem of evil is that if there was an omnipotent, omniscient, om, omnibenevolent benevolent God, there would be no evil. Since there's evil, there shouldn't be or can't be an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God. Those are contradictions according to them. So what is our twofold defense then against the problem of evil? It's without God, you would have no definition of evil. And then secondly, is that then you would have no uh, working out of things that are evil. You would just be miserable and pitiful. So you don't win either way. God gives us the solution to evil. He helps us define it, and then he shows us its purpose. So in other words, Jesus is the problem solver to the problem of evil. And then lastly, describe and defend the free will argument for evil. God gave man the choice between good and evil, and that also explains why we have free will. For the atheist, we don't have free will. We're just animals of instinct. Uh, but we do have free will, and that explains it. And it also explains why there's good and evil. Man chose evil. Therefore, God has allowed evil for his greater purpose. And though we don't know every individual reason for this kind of evil and what it means for good, we can see that uh, evil turns for good all the time. All the time in people's testimonies, like we said with C.S. Lewis, God may seem silent in pleasure, but aloud, uh, shouting aloud in pain. We see that sometimes in the greatest tragedies of life, people grow closer to God, to each other. People come up with inventions. People do uh, amazing things for their neighbors, even like now with the natural disaster, which we would say the earth experiences evil as well because it's not in its perfect state. All these people are, are sacrificially giving of their time and efforts to each other. It's an example of the love of God. So God uses evil all the time for his good. We've seen it in the stories of the Bible. We've seen what the cross was. It was meant for evil, but God turned it for good. Story of Joseph. Uh, everything, you know, everything that you can actually take time to look at. You may not know all the details, but even people in the Holocaust can talk about the good that came out of that because the nation, uh, the world's, uh, the world's nations turned their attention towards Israel and gave them back their land. And after 1800 years of these people being dispersed from their land, now they got it back. And so, uh, that worked for their good. And so what the, what the devil meant for harm towards the people of Israel worked for good. And we see that all over the place. And if we have time, I'll give you the short video here by Turek. But, uh, or no, debating with a, uh, a student. I'll give you guys that one if we have time, but I don't think we will. Okay, anybody else? Uh, I have uh, uh, So when Plantigo was saying that God can't, Right, create a world where free will creatures would automatically like would follow him, right? Would be inclined to follow him automatically. Uh, I was just wondering. Uh, so, when the new world and uh, you know we have new heavens and a new earth, right? Uh, and we're new creatures. The reason why we won't cause we won't be able to like now go and sin, right? <laughs> because what that that whole idea of temptation is not there, right? But yeah, I think it was saying, couldn't you have just been like, okay, if you didn't put a tree in the garden, 
But then right there, uh, they still technically do have free will or the ability to have free will. They decide the tree to now sin against. Or sin Good against question. God. Yep. Good question. That's one of the best arguments that the atheists will come up with right now is as it is in the end, in the millennial reign and in the uh, the kingdom to come uh, fully upon the earth, why didn't he just start us that way? Well, the point is that uh, we have the knowledge now of good and evil after there being evil. And so, like, you won't unlearn two plus two being four. You will not unlearn what you have been given. And so you still could sin. But sinning to you would be like saying two plus two is five or eating feces. Like right now, you could eat feces. You're free to do it, but you don't. So the the uh, there is no contradiction, and it's just all that God accomplishes in us that we freely went along with. And I believe, yes, at, in that time, we still could sin. We, we could lose our place. Uh, Satan comes back and tempts the earth during after the thousand-year reign. Technically speaking, we could fall like the angels and that be our final fall. But the Bible doesn't mention that because once again, that to us would look like dong, like dung. Um, and the same thing is moving forward, we could fall, but we won't want to. And the, the, when people say, well, why didn't he create us in that original state? Well, he did. And we fell. We were in the perfect garden. We were uh, angels were in the perfect heaven, saw God, but they still chose it. But thankfully, he gave us another choice. So the difference between us and Adam and Eve is we now look back on our choices going, I'm not touching that fruit this time. That's the difference. We're still free, but we're saying we're not touching it. And we don't ever have to touch it again. And the only reason why now as Christians we do sin is because as we, as we believe in our church, that we believe in Christian perfection, we don't ever have to sin again even right now. But the only reason why we keep giving, uh, giving in to sin is because we're in a sinful body and we haven't yet been glorified, but we believe after we'll be glorified, we won't make that sinful choice again because the outside influence won't be strong enough on us. But technically, you still could. So that is a great question, and that's exactly how I would answer the atheists because they'll try to come up with a contradiction. They'll try to say, well, does he take away your free will in heaven and then then now you all live in bliss. Well, why didn't he do that at the beginning? Just not take away, your, not give you free will and have you live in bliss. Then if you go, no, 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 we have free will, then, okay, then can you send? No, 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 we can't send. Well, then you just contradicted yourself because you said they it, free will automatically means you can send. So which one is it? So what you want to do is just show them it's absolutely consistent, but we will have now learned that lesson and being in a glorified body, we will not have the kind of temptation that we have now. The only kind of temptation, because I don't believe there'll be a, a, a tree to choose from or a serpent to tempt us, and we won't have a sinful body to tempt us. The only temptation that we could have is the temptation of Satan, and, and that's what he had in a, in a, as a glorified spirit in the full presence of God, and that was, I can be a God myself. And we will say to ourselves in that state of eternity, I do not want to try that because we can't be a God ourselves. So we've learned it like literally two plus two equals four. We will never be him. We will never take worship with us. If we think we're going to fall, I mean, if we think we're going to take whatever and be worshiped, we're not. It's not going to happen. 
And so I just believe, like I said, that revelation alone will have us avoid the temptation of Satan. And then, like I said, there's no more tempter and there's no more body of temptation. So does that answer the question? Yeah, it kind of reminded me of how the prodigal son, you know, he was given the inheritance right away and he was kind of shut the whole time. But then once we once he left, he found out what, how much like how much problems in the world, and he came back. Exactly. So yeah, dude, perfect example. Think about that. How many times do you want to leave now and do what the prodigal son did? I don't want to do it. So this it's the same way. Now to the relation of sin, we may still sin, like I said, because we're in a sinful body with temptation all around. But when you relieve the the temptation from us, the sinful body, the tempter. Now, the only way we could ever be tempted is internally to do one thing. It's not even, it's not going to be to have sex. It's not going to, you know, because there's not going to be anybody to have sex with. The only temptation, like I said, would be that of Satan to say, I want to be God and do my own thing. And, and you will literally look at that like how I look at now shooting heroin and snorting Coke and doing the drugs that I used to do. I didn't shoot heroin, but, uh, you know, I, I, I snorted Coke. But the idea is like, that's how crazy that would seem to me. Like right now, there's no way in God's green earth. I want to go snort crystal meth and go do drugs like that. Like that's, and that, and that will even seem more redonkulous to us after we've seen the judgments after, because dude, it is not seeing the judgments and all of these things. It is not going to be like a dream. I always tell people as I describe the kingdom of God and all of these things in this way, because I think it helps. It is not going to feel dreamlike. Like, you know, like when you're in a dream and it's like, I'm kind of there, I'm kind of not, weird things are happening. It's fuzzy. No, no, no. That is not, the kingdom of God is this and more real. Your senses, time still is there. Hearing, seeing, all of this is the image of God. This is what God gave Adam and Eve because this is what the son of man looks like, you know? So, I mean, you're literally, we're we're sitting down watching the fallen angel called Lucifer get pimp slapped, thrown into a pit. You are watching people's lives being judged. Like that may take 3000 years. Who knows? We will be there for 3000 years, not bored. We will be watching the game of Thrones in some kind of way happening before us. And when it's done, I guarantee you the last thing on anybody's mind from then and for eternity will ever to be, I want to go in that guy's direction. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just the, we know. And here's the thing about it is that good and evil. I believe God would have taught us without the experience. So if people say, what was God's original plan? If we would have, cause I think we were supposed to kill the, the serpent. This is my, my guess. I think we were supposed to strangle it, kill it, put it down. And then what God was going to do is now teach us good and evil without us having to experience it, and then we wouldn't have had to ever have done it. And he could have done it in a hundred different ways. He could have shown us what evil looks like. He could have whatever, but we didn't give him that chance. We went and just ingested it ourselves. We defiled ourselves, you know, so like we blew the whole thing up. So I actually think eternity will continue that conversation. And it will probably look back on the evil we knew and we'll see more good than evil. But I think, I I think somehow the conversation between us and God will always somehow be around good and evil and what his nature is like, because remember we talked about before 
Uh, evil is the absence of good. So I think sometimes to have a conversation with with something that's light or something that's good, you need the contrast. Like what is light? Well, you have to know what darkness is in some way. You have to know what evil is. So I honestly believe it was always a part of God's plan for him to contrast who he was to who he wasn't. Let's just say it like that. Let's just say good is who he is and evil is who he's not. So he was going to teach us the contrast. And we wanted to learn it personally. This is what he's not like, and I'm not like him now. And then now I want to be like him, you know. But I think for the rest of eternity, those will be a lot of the intriguing things of what he's like and what he's not like. That kind of a discussion. Two minutes left. It's a deep night. Guys, I'll be hanging out 15 minutes afterwards. I hope that your mind's been stretched. Uh, anybody want to uh, ask a real quick question? The children of the millennium, uh, since in the thousand-year reign, there will be believers with unglorified bodies and believers with glorified bodies. Correct. And, and then with the believers with unglorified bodies, if they're married, they'll be able to produce children. Correct. And scholars believe that the children are the ones that will be able to te technically fall into sin. Exactly. And yes. And not to interrupt you, that, that is the standard belief. I believe it. But there's nothing that says the glorified yeah. ones cannot fall to. But I'm totally with you that it, it's yeah. the temptation is going to be for the children born in the millennial reign. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. My whole thing is just and, I, and Juan, I'll have you close us out in prayer. My thing is this evil is not as big of a deal as the world makes it out to be. It's because they don't know our great big God. When you know our great big God, you understand what's going on with evil. And here's the thing, because a lot of times we got to do apologetics with ourselves. Evil feels evil, right? So when it even happens to us as Christians, like, you know, somebody in your life gets tragically murdered or, you, you lose a loved one or bury a child and it, your head is spinning and your emotions. I would just simply say as a pastor, not as a philosopher now, but as a pastor to encourage people to look back to the cross and understand Jesus is there. He's there with you. Like think of that moment. He's on the cross he is there with you in that suffering, and he can say, I understand. And that's why he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And yes, we, we don't know how is this going to work for good, but we trust him that it will. We trust the one with the nail-pierced hands. We trust him that he knows our pain, and it may hurt for a while. And we just have to remind ourselves we're in the valley of the shadow of death. But he said he is with us and his rod and staff, they will comfort us. And then secondly, we place our heart and our mind on the kingdom to come, that he will make every wrong right. Even if we bury our child and we just, God, why did you even give me this child to know for this many years? And now they die of cancer. We trust him and we say, Lord, you're still good. 
And we believe that good will come from this, even now in this world. I'll look for opportunities to share your love with other parents and say, appreciate your kids. And, you know, come to Jesus if you don't know Jesus, because I know where my child went, et cetera. But Lord, I even know more so in the kingdom to come. You will make this right. All right, Juan, pray for us, please. Dear God, I thank you, Lord, for for our class, Lord. I just pray that we'll we'll choose. We know since the problem of evil came from the tree of good and evil, Lord. I just pray that we'll choose good, Lord. We'll choose your path, Lord. And in the midst of people's choices not to follow you, I just pray, Lord, that we will be the light, Lord, to draw people to you, Lord. Yes. And I just ask, Lord, that that people that deal with the problem of evil, Lord, that they will understand that you gave them a choice, Lord, to accept you or to reject mm-hmm. you. And that, and that was greater good, Lord, that you gave us a choice to love you, Lord, to love you back, to love you without any predetermined thing, but to freely choose you, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that people will learn to choose you, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, for this class, Lord, for things we learn. And I just ask that, Lord, that you, you edify your body and to do everything for your will and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.